most people, when you start with a drug process, you're looking, you know, normally less than 100 liters, knowing that your commercial batch size could actually be 1500 liters. And then the question also comes down to, are you doing redundant filtration? Are you utilizing two filters? Are you utilizing one? Kind of understanding your product, I think definitely the filter vendor still can help with that. Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Narki. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of CMC Live. So a vital part of the clinical trial work or actually putting a marketing application is CMC chemistry manufacturing controls, as we know, of course. And once again, it's our goal here to help you reach your next milestone um, by providing scientific and any regulatory expertise in all areas of CMC development. And we like to help ensure your program progresses as scheduled. So you need some sharp specialized guidance and support during your development program. Today, of course, is National Chocolate Mint Day, which is recognized by the US National Confectioners Association. National Chocolate Day is observed annually across the nation on February 19th. I bet you didn't know that. And it's uh, set aside basically for all the chocolate mint lovers to eat their favorite treats all day long, just a fact. And today we're chatting with Shelly Connolly, live and virtual from out in the Wolverine state of Michigan. So Shelly has been involved with us here for a bit, involved previously in, in her work experiences with tech transfers of sterile peripheral products, including working with supporting departments and companies and customer representatives. She's facilitated and finalized project timelines, scale up, bulk compounding, release testing. She's been involved with quite a bit. Um, before we go on to that, though, as I mentioned about CMC, the process of bringing a new product to market is long, complex, and it's often expensive with important decisions that you have to make at every stage. It becomes more of a challenge when you're developing a sterile product, of course. The method for sterilization is a critical consideration in drug development and may be done by sterile filtration followed by aseptic filling. Although the decision to incorporate filtration here hinges in part on performing validation work to ensure that the filter used uh, to eliminate any microorganisms is the right one. Uh, so performance is a key. And ideally, filter validation would be carried out in the very early stages of production. However, that's not always the case. But uh, if so, it's, it's in, usually in conjunction with other validation activities like media fills to guarantee sterility of the final drug product, of course. In reality though, Deciding when to carry out filter uh, validation work requires balancing a range of practical considerations. Agencies out there, as you guys know, uh, such as the FDA or European Union, of course, provide guidance documents and set regulations that talk about and dictate the requirements. Um, and other organizations out there, Parenteral Drug Association, PDA, for example, have developed technical bulletins, um, which you know basically you should check out, very enlightening. Um, they also provide information on the topic. And as one of the fundamental activities documenting the production process complies with necessary regulations, it's critical to show that the filtration process will consistently, that is, result in product that meets all the necessary quality standards and characteristics. So filter validation provides documented evidence of the functionality of the filter under the same conditions in which it will be used during the pharmaceutical manufacturing process. So we're excited to talk with Shelly today here. 
And Shelly's going to discuss some of the elements uh, to filter validation, including, for example, integrity testing, fit for use, sterilization, stability, binding, et cetera. And she'll possibly give it, be giving some of her uh, real life experiences. So I want to throw it over to my trustworthy um, co-host today, Brian, Brian Leo. Uh, that's you, Brian, to give further introduction. Brian obviously is our local drip product expert as well as a few other things. And I look forward to this discussion here as it's out of my, my background and technical area of expertise, but I hope that you'll enjoy it as well. So we've got with us today, Shelly Connolly here to CMC Live. Miranda and I were fortunate enough to get Shelly, who's a senior drug product consultant for us here at DSI with a host of experience in uh, sterols, sterile injectables. And what we wanna talk about today is filtration. How do we select a filter? How do you qualify a filter? How do you validate a filter? We get a lot of questions and we thought it'd be good if we could kind of break down the fundamental components. But why don't we start with Shelly, why don't you introduce yourself and a little bit about yourself? Sure. Good morning. My name is Shelly Conley. My background consists of almost 25 years of sterile fill finish drug product. I have done everything from clinical pox lots through registration, validation, and commercial scale-up, and filter validation is always a fun and hot topic in regards to filings and or any type of changes that may occur over a product's life cycle, like increasing batch size or changes of maybe API or excipients or even process. So those all need to be considered when uh, looking at filter validation. Great. So why don't we start from the beginning? Let's say that we have a process that is a, a pilot scale batch and it requires filtration. How do you go about selecting a filter? Not all filters are the same. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about how they're not the same and how you go about selecting a filter. So I think it's important first to know about your product in general. What is your formulation? Is it water-based? Is it oil-based? Most injectable products are water-based from what I've seen. And normally there are two filter membranes that are the most common. It's the PVDF and the mixed esters of cellulose. Those are the two most common sterile filters I think I've seen over the last 25 years. But if you have a product that may be, you know, ethyl alcohol or have a different type of main vehicle, you may need some type of like nylon filter or something like that. So I think knowing what your product formulation is and understanding that more so from a chemical side or more the laboratory side, I think you start with that and then perform some compatibility studies up front. They have those small 47 millimeter disc filters that you can purchase. And a lot of the analytical people know to do these quick studies and you do them over time to see if a filter would be compatible with the product and start there. What are typically failure modes in filtration? As you eliminate the prospects for a filter, what do you typically see in terms of failures? So I think from a failure mode perspective, I've seen companies not know enough about their product in general and actually pick the wrong filter, right? So I think starting still up front, even before you get start making batches, is if you're unsure, you don't have enough experience with that, I think reaching out to the filter vendors like Millipore, Sartorius, Paul, the big three, I think getting with them and doing like a filterability test up front, because what they can do is they can pick out their four or five filters 
looking at what your product contains and actually do a quick down and dirty study and kind of lead you in the direction of where you need to go from a filter perspective so that you choose the right one before you even start making that. Okay, that's so basically rely on their protocols. You, they'll, they'll walk you through the process? I think especially if you're a young company and you don't have experience, you know, doing filter validation, I think that's a great start. And a lot of them will do those filter validation, like filterability studies, even for low cost or no cost up front, because they know once they give you a filter you're going to use, you're going to buy it from them. So it's a great thing that they do for you. And I highly recommend reaching out to the filter vendors or your, they're your best support, especially with this. I would imagine, not to get too far ahead, but I would imagine all of that information you get back from the vendor folds into the development history of the product. You would ultimately need that. Correct. Correct. You can absolutely utilize that. I don't think it would necessarily be needed for a filing, but it would definitely be needed for the product development folks that may need a little bit of back history as to what was done with those filters, because it definitely will help the process development, you know, group proceed and move the product through to commercial. Okay, so now we talk about the material compatibility. How about sizing a filter? Does it matter what size? Because they've got these great little disc filters. They're cheap. I could run all day on those. Of course, size is very important. So size is really... It's interesting has how it's evolved since I've started. You know, back in the day, excipients and things were a lot more dirtier than they are today. Things are a lot more cleaner. But in that sense, yes, there are normally definitely different filter sizes, and it's mainly related to, you know, what's your batch size and what kind of bio load are you putting into it during your formulation process and kind of looking at your overall product formulation? Is it something that's, you know, a little more viscous? Is it going to clog your filter? You need to know about your overall formulation and look at those particular things, you know, I would think. So do you do, is it a, is it a recirculation study? How do you determine, let's say, for example, we're moving from a, a small two-head filler to a larger, you know, eight-head, and it's going to be running eight hours and you're pushing more volume through those filters. How do you establish that surface area? How do you determine that? So I think some of that also can relate back to those filterability studies with the filter vendors that you first initially do. Most people, you know, when you start with a drug process, you're looking, you know, normally less than 100 liters, knowing that your commercial batch size could actually be, you know, 1500 liters. And then the question also comes down to, are you doing redundant filtration? Are you utilizing two filters? Are you utilizing one? So I think kind of understanding your product, I think definitely the filter vendor still can help with that. I can't say in my history, I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever gone really over a 10 inch. There may be a product that has gone 20 or 30 inches, but it's a unique product. Majority of sterile injectable products are going to be 10 inches or smaller. And then if you have, you know, a 100 or 200 liter batch, normally you're using like a four inch or six inch filter. And I'm mainly focusing on water products here, but, you know, oil-based products may be a little different in that sense, but hopefully that gives you uh, more information. Filters have, have evolved. When I first started, everything was the plate and frame filters and, and all the lovely ways they can leak. And now it seems to be a lot more, they're pre-sterilized, packaged. So do you get much call for the old stuff or is it pretty much single-use disposable 
no housings, things like that? So I think that the push in the industry is definitely to go more towards the disposable route. There will be some products that can't do that, that may need to heat during filtration and need a jacketed filter housing. So in those instances, you can't really go disposable. But however, overall, I would say for sure, the industry push is to move to disposables. It's just, you will not have filter failures and setup problems. I mean, they come to you ready to use and to go and, and they're very robust. The disposable filters are very, very robust. So hear that all you development people out there, think about the end user. Think about those of us on the line that are assembling those filter filters, assemblies, pressure testing them and everything that comes with it. It's a lot easier to unwrap them, put them in your autoclave load and be done with it. Same would go for vent filters on tanks. I know I, a previous place I worked at, there was a big push to get rid of the stainless steel housings because they were having issues with failures. Oh yeah. And as soon as we switched over to disposables, we did not have that issue. And it all the way around saves reprocessing time, money, resources, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the sealing surface of that gasket will get nicked and it may not seal. And then you've got people taking wrenches to the clamps and trying to torque them down. Love those. So yeah, it just takes the guesswork out of it. For sure. So, okay. So now we've selected our filter. Do you have to qualify a filter before you validate it? Or how is that done? So normally if you're utilizing a sterilizing filter, you know, the 0.2 micron, you definitely have to run it through some type of sterilization process, either autoclave and, you know, or gamma or radiation. It just depends on, I guess, the facility where you're at. And if you're at, you know, a contract facility, you kind of, it really just depends on what facility and which way you want to go. You can go either way. A lot of times the CMOs, they may have, if they're buying in bulk, you'll get a better deal passed on to you for the filters because of just the sheer number that they're buying. Now, when you talk about things like filter validation, at what phase in a program do you need to validate for filtration? Because now you're going, phase two, you're going into human. When do you really need to have that line in the sand in terms of sterility assurance and validation? Sure. For sure, filter validation needs to be done either before or in conjunction with registration badges. You will need the filter validation for the filing. It is, it's a requirement. So that's going to have to be done before then. For commercial products, if you change batch size and go bigger or do any other type of different change or you want to, you know, your filter parameters are going to change in any way, then you will have to go back and revalidate your commercial process. Okay. One of the things that when I first got started, which was a while ago, pre-use integrity testing was a business decision. It was, well, we did it because we wanted to ensure the filter. And sometimes it's, as you mentioned before, it's the assembly of the housing and all the things that could influence it. But we weren't, we weren't pre-use testing all the time. Now it seems in the, the sites that I've visited, that seems to be more the norm with pre-use testing. How do you address that? Or how have you seen it? So actually, I've seen it both ways. From my professional opinion, I don't think it's necessary. A lot of people are doing it if they have super expensive products, which I completely understand because you don't want to be throwing your products out if you have a, a failure on your, your filter. But in my years, I have seen two, two only, two 
true filter failures, especially on the disposable housing. So they're very rare. All of the filters made by the filter manufacturers are integrity tested. Each filter is integrity tested to show that it meets its minimum bubble point requirements based on what the vendor has provided. So in that instance, I mean, you already have assurance that it is a good filter. Now, I know there was talk about shipping and this and that, but I just haven't seen any issues with the shipment and or gamma radiation really causing any pre-use filter failures. I think it really comes down to, you know, if you're using a CMO or if you are just having new products come into your facility that are your own, it's probably legacy as to whatever it is that company's been doing. I think it's kind of on the fence, depending. It just depends. And if you're going over to EU, they require you to do, I think, a pre-use filter integrity test. So I'm hearing you may be able to risk that mitigation out with documentation as well and maybe skip that. Qualify the vendor and that starts with it. Maybe you could, yeah. You mentioned something that I'm not sure our listeners fully understand, or some do. You said bubble point. What exactly, now the bubble point references, you go back to the days of yore when you were actually looking for bubbles, but what is the bubble point test? What does it do? So a bubble point test is related to the micron size of your filter, meaning if you have a 0.2 or a 0.45, those bubble points are going to be different. So what ends up happening is you wet your filter membrane and all you're really doing is pushing pressure. You put pressure on the upstream side of the filter to allow air to get through the pores. So what ends up happening is each vendor will have a specified minimum bubble point value. For the 0.2 micron filters, it's normally around 50 PSI or 48 PSI. So what ends up happening is once you start the test, the pressure slowly increases up to that minimum point. And what will happen is bubbles will start going through the pore size hopefully above 50. That's the goal. And then you have a passing test. So it has everything to do with air pressure and allowing that pressure to go through the pore size of the filter. Okay. And I think, you know, when I first started doing this, we didn't have machines. We didn't have the, the, you know, the millipore integrity testers and things like that. And all the major vendors have them, but now they do. And I think one thing to note for those of you that are working with CMOs, and you're doing the lot release, paying attention to the calibration date of the tester, the fact that the, the tester was validated, especially sites that use multiple testers and push them around in different areas, because it could really impact your filter values, which could be ultimately the disposition of your material. So I think that's an important thing to note when you talk about integrity testing. I would agree. Okay. We talk about how we select it. So you look at the, the composition of your product, the compatibility of the, the material of the membrane itself, you look at the surface area of the membrane in terms of the volumes you're pushing through. And then we talked about what actually integrity testing is. These are all things that are good to clarify. Now you get into filter validation. Now, much like the compatibility, a lot of vendors will take care of that for you and they'll put together a protocol, you review the protocol. But what exactly goes into filter validation? So I think initially, What ends up happening is each of the filter validation vendors have an information sheet on your 
product you, that you have to fill out, meaning they want to know certain parameters. How is your filter sterilized? What is your batch size? What is your flow rate per minute of solution? Is it cold? Is it room temp? How long are you doing an intermittent filtration where you, you know, you filter for a little while and then it sits? Or are you doing a continual filtration from like a tank to a tank or a bag to a bag? All of those things play a role in your very first step of filter validation. And you need to know all of those things in order for them to perform the validation successfully. One word of caution I will say on that is if you are uncertain of what your batch sizes are going to be from a commercial standpoint, and let's say you're, you're thinking it's only going to be two, 200 liters and then a year from now, all of a sudden, oh my gosh, it's a blockbuster product and, and we're going to scale up to 400. You will have to repeat your filter validation a year from now if you don't do more of a worst case. So when filling out those filter validation forms, I highly recommend doing a worst case scenario, meaning how long is your intermittent filtration? If you think it's going to be 24 hours, you really should be validating 36 or 48 hours. If your batch size is 200, make it three, you know, give yourself a little wiggle room. Don't validate it at the high end of where your process validation is going to start. You need to kind of go above and beyond that, or you're going to find yourself repeating all of this and filter validation is not cheap. Well, there's something else to consider. I know I worked at a site where our one commercial fill line was, it was problematic. It was an old design. It was prone to failures and we got very good at, at making repairs in an aseptic environment, but what it would do is it would draw out your processing time. And our rate limiter became our filter validation. We would have to throw away or, or pull product back out of the suite to refilter and find time in the schedule to finish it. So really having a true understanding of everything that makes up your aseptic processing suite and making sure that time covers excursions because you will have Absolutely, yes. You don't want to plan for them, but you need to because it does. It, it it just it happens. It just happens. Yeah. Can you do filter validation in house, or do you really have to rely on your vendor? I don't know anybody that is doing it in house. I think everybody, because there are so many other things that go on from a sterile drug product perspective, it is just one of those things that I think almost everybody is leaving with the vendors and or laboratories that are that actually can do some of the work. I don't know of anybody that is doing it in-house. It is a lot of work to do the different, there's, you know, a lot of different filter validation, I guess, documents that are needed in order to support your filing. Okay. Okay. No, that's a good point. And it's highly scrutinized. What I've found is that over the years is that inspectors have a tendency to gravitate things they're comfortable in know. And sterile filtration has been around forever aseptic processing. So you get a lot of questions. So here's one. Let me throw you a curveball. So if you don't have a terminally sterilized product, you do your media challenges. How do you use a filter in a media challenge? Because, I mean, you start with a known bio burden. Do you put, let's say you've got two filters in series. Do you put actual filters in when you're trying to, let's say you're trying to qualify the product pathway and you're going from a tank to a, a filling reservoir on a machine. Well, if you're running it through two sterile filters, does that negate what you're trying to prove on the upstream of the product pathway? How do you use filters in a media simulation? 
So I think when looking at your overall process times for a product, I think utilizing your filter validation in conjunction with your media fill program, whatever that may be, they have to be synced. They have to be in alignment. So not only should you be looking at, you know, your worst case parameters from a filter validation perspective, you those parameters that you pick must match or medias could exceed them, which is fine. They either need to match or exceed from an aseptic media perspective because they work together. There are two different aspects of, uh, you know, sterility per se, but they definitely feed into your final product, but they have to be together. Now, from a selection of a, a filter from a media perspective, I think you need to choose the right membrane. Like you can't use a nylon filter. I'm sorry, it doesn't, it doesn't mesh well with media. It'll clog. So you need to make, you know, make sure you're picking one that's water-based, but really focus on whatever type of connections uh, you're, you're using for product. You need to ensure your connections for your media are the same because that's really what you're looking for. Maybe not necessarily the membrane, you know, in general from a media perspective. It's really contact with the media and all the, yes. the key aseptic connections along the route. Correct. Great. So, okay, one last question. Okay, I've done my filter validation. When I look at compiling my filing, okay, I'm going for my NDA, my BLA. How much of my filter validation do I put in? And I it's a regulatory question, but I know you've been very involved in all of that. Do, do you hold it back and wait upon request? What's your philosophy in terms of what's included? So I've seen it many different ways, actually, but more recently, I think, you know, I'd say the top four filter validations that are being done, of course, bacteria retention is needed. Mm-hmm. You need to have your compatibility product bubble point, and then they also want extractables. I have seen companies submit all four, but then not necessarily do a product bubble point for their product down the road. Product bubble point is an interesting one because I know there was a big push years ago to move towards product bubble point, but a program like that, especially if you are working with like some type of CMO, it is very, you would need a person just to man it, mainly because if there are any, again, API changes or you change, you know, manufacturers, you have to go back and repeat your product bubble point. And I think there's almost recommendations as well to, you know, keep somebody needs to kind of oversee your product bubble point throughout the year and kind of come up with an overall summary to ensure you're not seeing drift or you're having, you know, filter failures because your product bubble point values, you know, may have shifted because of maybe something you're unaware of. Maybe the vendor API manufacturer made a change and you didn't think it would impact, you know, your product bubble point and now it is. So I've seen you actually do the product bubble point and file it, but then not necessarily even utilize the information. I think, especially from an FDA perspective, they're looking for all four, even if you don't use it, which is interesting to me. But that's just kind of what I've seen the most is people are doing all of those and submitting all of them. Okay. You mentioned something, though, early in your explanation, and you mentioned the term extractables. For the benefit of the folks listening in, what exactly are extractable? So from a filter extractable perspective, 
And actually, the extractables has been going on for quite a bit. Most of the vendors, from an extractable standpoint, use almost like a a worst case model solvent stream where you're at low and high pHs, and they're using solvents to ensure that you know nothing is getting extracted off the filter and into your product. Really, is what you're looking for there. And in that sense, that's been those that testing has been going on for quite a a long time. And I want to say, I think, I don't think I've seen any products where actual extractable testing has had to been done on the product per se, since a lot of the, the filter vendors have done these model solvent stream worst case scenarios so that your product normally falls into that, you know, grouping. And then it's an easy, it's easy for them because then they have all the data as well that they can provide you from an extractable standpoint based on their worst case scenario that they're utilizing during the testing. Okay. So as we're winding up, is there any one bit of advice you would give, say, a sponsor who is, let's say, just got out of pilot plant, looking to get into clinical production? What sort of considerations would you recommend they do in terms of filtration? I think the biggest one is definitely ensuring that the product is compatible with the filter and not having any issues and doing just some small lab scale studies and, and taking even a liter or two and running them through those small disk filters. It will actually tell you quite a bit and doing that, I would say. That's good. That's what words to live by because every time I think that the, the simple box check common sense is known by everybody, we come across a situation where it's new and exciting and you have to explain it. So. I really want to, I really want to thank you for the time. This has been most informative. Again, we have a lot of inquiries from various companies talking about filter compatibility, filter validation, do I really need it? And I think this really explains a lot of the basic terms and also the concepts and timing behind why you do what you do. Thank you very much. We appreciate the time. Yep. Thank you. Okay, thank you again, Shelley. So in recap, some key questions and discussions. Knowing a bit about your product's important. Sounds very generic, but it's true. So for example, if it was water-based, we talked about, you know, if there's a different solvent, it makes a big difference for the materials that you're using. You need to think about that. You know, how comp- compatibility studies, for example, play a role, you know, up from the beginning. And, you know, you look at the comp- compatibility, of course. As we discussed some of the things around failure modes, which was interesting, what do you do if you pick the wrong filter, right? We talked about dialogues, interactions with some of the larger filter vendors and providers. Very key and very important, especially if you're a young company that may not have engaged in this so much or have that much deep experience. So how filter vendors are talking to them and how they work and operate, are, they're your best resources. And it's important to speak with the same language and speak to them. And as someone mentioned, size is definitely important. Successful filter validation requires a partner, obviously with experience and properly evaluating and documenting such elements of filter validation and failing at any of the steps listed above, or we talked about, you know, during the podcast here can lead to costly delays in getting your product to market. So whether you're an early stage company or looking for a partner, take your sterile product into GMP manufacturing, contact us maybe to discuss some options and we can help with that. Uh, You can benefit from our experience team here. So on the next podcast, we'll be speaking with Dr. James Mensel. Jim's back once again, of course. Uh, he actually was our first guest on our first two podcasts this uh, season, and I encourage you all to catch them once again. Very great information. He goes over process validation a bit as well, and he'll get into that a little deeper on the next podcast. So join us next time, and I thank you again. Thanks for listening. 
To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cmc live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.